stay hungry, stay foolish. Before we get into today's show, I want to thank our sponsor Zai, boldly transforming the future of financial services with a suite of embedded products and services, empowering businesses to move funds with ease and enable multiple payment workflows. Check out Zai at hellozai.com. For now, let's get into today's episode. Today's book is designed to bring you simple, sound, and practical tools to awaken your creativity at work, even if you don't think you are creative. No fluff or theories, no bull or fillers. Our guest draws on a lifetime of success in business to give you real actionable tools that you can use to become more creative. We welcome the author of The Creator Mindset, 92 Tools to Unlock the Secrets to Innovation, Growth and Sustainability, Nir Bashan. Welcome to the show. Thanks, Aidan. Thanks for having me. I have a copy here behind me, as everybody knows, on the bookshelf. There's one up for grabs for you. Just sign up to the innovationshow.io newsletter, and you'll be in the hat to win a copy of that book. Let's get into it. We have a lot to cover today. Nir, before we jump in, let's set some context, because you say that we are all born with creativity. The spark most of us have extinguished as we grow older. This is a huge challenge for most of us. We lose that childlike creativity that we all are born with. And you say that spark must be relearned because as adults, we are told that creativity is not part and parcel of maturity. It's not serious business acumen. It's frivolous because it cannot be measured and it cannot be quantified. This is a huge challenge for creative people in the workplace. Absolutely, Aiden. And, and you know, you publish with Wiley, your books out there, and it's doing really well. And this is a McGraw-Hill book, right? So you can't just say what you want in these books. I, as much as I really wanted to, I just wanted to like put there, oh, I think this. And I went through the editing process and, you know, it, it was just like redlined and circled like, defend this, this needs an attribution and all this stuff. So I, I was really forced to do the research. And what, what we found through talking with child psychologists at uh, different prestigious uh, universities, um, some hospitalists and uh, just a wide body of knowledge is that children, uh, especially babies, are creative before language takes hold. And what ends up happening is that they're able to solve this, you know, Cheerio in a bottle. Uh, they can get it out so that they can eat it before any kind of language like give me the Cheerio or me want anything like that takes hold. And so what you have is a hardwired system in, in every human being on earth that enables them to be creative as a problem-solving tool before anything else takes hold. Now, you're probably smarter than me, and you're like, well, Nir, that's great in the U.S. and maybe in the U.K. or something, um, but what about in Angola or the Philippines or whatever? So I started to look because I had the same question. I was like, ah, you know, maybe it's just a West thing. Oh, you know, babies in the West are, are creative and whatever. And we found that it's categorically false that – Babies, no matter where they are on planet Earth, right, from some of the highest socioeconomic levels to dirt poor poverty, are incredibly creative. It's a humanity thing. So I started to do some research and I found out that it's it's embedded, it's hardwired in us. And it takes a lot of effort to just 
squash it down and be a serious, mature adult. And that's the genesis of this book, the creator mindset is helping unlock people's creativity that they have deep within them, but they might not know that they have it. The other thing you talk about that's so core is that many people think they're creative or they're not. They're right hemisphere orientated, they're left hemisphere orientated, and therefore they can't be creative. And the other thing, as I said there in the intro, one of the things is companies want creativity but then when they have someone that's creative, they often reject them like a bad kidney transplant out of the organization. But one of the key facts is creativity can be learned. And that's your ultimate goal with this book. So my, my mission in life is to help people become more creative, no matter what they do, from manufacturing to medicine. It doesn't matter what field you're in. I'm really there to help people learn the basic tools. And it's really about relearning them, right? Because we all kind of had them as children. And then we go to school and something happens along the way. We join the military, whatever it is that we do, we like get it squashed out of us. And then we go into the world, we, we start a business or we go to work somewhere and we forget these amazing instinctual tools that we are all born with that can help us solve amazing, amazing problems. And part of it, to be honest with you, Aiden, is selfish because I want a better world. You know, I, I want a better coffee maker than I have. My coffee maker sucks. I put in a little K cup, I close the thing, I put in some water. Like, dude, really? Like, why do I have to put in? It should, I mean, like, it's, you know, 2022, man. It should be like futuristic. Do you remember, do you remember when like uh, the Space Audit, when Stanley Kubrick's movie came out? It, like 2001, everyone was like, oh, you know, 2001, there's going to be, you know, we're going to fly. To, and we could totally have been there. But why, why aren't we there? And why isn't the future there? It's because we're not acting on these creative impulses. We're not acting on creativity as a humanity. And what ends up happening is we all suffer because of that. It's really fascinating. And yeah, I hope AI will be making our coffee pretty soon. They, and there's already a, a robotic uh, barista in, in over your part of the world. There's a robotic barista that, that knows you as you come into the barista, into the coffee house. It's like, oh, no, there's near. I better make his coffee the way he yeah, likes it. Make it stuff. right, too. Or else, <laughs> you know, no tip. But uh, and, and the good thing is AI doesn't want a tip. It doesn't mean. <laughs> <laughs> but uh and you know what that's like our part of the world anybody who's worked waitressing over or has had irish tourists we're not great tippers when we go to the us <laughs> we don't understand that culture anyway let's move on i was thinking of there's amazing serendipities happen when you have a podcast you know what that's like you run your own podcast as well and we'll let people know at the end of today's show where to find that very simple nearbashan.com just <laughs> for anybody who wants to jump in there right now but one of the things I was found so serendipitous about this was I'm currently reading, it's not a book, it, it's an oeuvre, the French word that means a body of work by a guy called Ian McGilchrist. And Ian's been a former guest on the show. It's an unbelievable book. It's like 3,000 pages long. It's, it's massive. He's basically covered every aspect of the brain. And I've been reading that in the background, getting ready for a future episode, because I, I, I don't have the mental capacity to read it all in one go, because there's so much, obviously. But then I was reading your book, and I was like, kind of going, this is so serendipitous, because Ian also has a former book called The Master and His Emissary. And it's about this ancient story of a master 
who go, who sends an emissary this this person who represents him out into the world and what it is about is about the right and left brain and in Ian's world the right brain is the master and it sent out the left brain which is the more analytical side out into the world but what's happened is the left brain then turns around and kind of goes you know what I can be running the show here screw the master I'm the king here and that's what's happened in the world and this is very much a theme throughout your work is we're living in this world where the left hemisphere dominates it's an analytical logical world and that often quashes creativity and this is what's happening in the business world absolutely and it's shocking it's shocking how much money we're leaving on the table though my whole thing is i help businesses become creative i'm not an artist i don't draw or paint or sculpt or dance i mean that's cool if you do that that's that's fantastic like some people love the arts and you know i do too but that's not what i'm talking about here i'm talking about creativity for practical purposes, for launching initiatives, for finding ways to increase profitability. I believe that the very engine of ingenuity, of business, of trade is one of the best things that we've come up with in the last 200 years, right? It has lifted more people out of poverty around the world than any other thing ever, ever, right? Charity has been going on for 20, you know, 15,000 years or whatever, since the dawn of man, there's been charity, 30,000 years. But has that lifted people out of poverty? No. Um, there's all these, you know, the, the church giving and all this stuff. Has that lifted people? No. What's lifting people out of poverty is the ability to work, to have purpose in life and a job, and the ability to contribute to their society through their goods, products, or services, right? That very thing is the driver of my message in helping people become creative is incredibly important in the fabric of that environment because when you are creative, you're able to say, oh, okay, let's look at this process a little differently. Here's an efficiency I can make. Here is a way that I can increase the profitability of what I'm doing or increase the efficiency of my job or whatever it is so that I can contribute to society on a much higher level. Yeah, I, I agree, Aiden. We have a sh shocking, shocking lack of creativity in modern business. We have the brain that is being almost overwhelmed by one side of the, you know, the analytic side, just squashing down the creative side. And we end up with a world that's like that, not that great, you know, it's just not that fun. And when we start to say, okay, the analytics are important to some degree, but what we really do is we start to balance out the two, then we're golden, right? So there's a lot of books out there that say, throw away the analytics and take off your clothes and go into the forest and light a fire and smoke a lot of dope. It's like, that's, yeah, I don't think that's a good idea at all, right? I think life, humanity, if you look at it carefully, and I've studied this stuff kind of because I had to, not because I wanted to, but because I had to, right? I've studied all this stuff, and I found that balance is one of nature's most elusive um, goals, right? It's one of the most difficult yet amazing places that anybody can be in from a physiological, biological perspective, all the way to a work perspective and a career perspective. So what we need to do 
is we're like 90, 10, right? We're 90% analytic, 10% creativity. And we need to just try to balance it out 50-50. If we're able to balance out our minds and our efforts and our ingenuity, our our productivity, the profit that we can generate from the revenues um, in our product or service, if we could just be balanced, Aiden, the world is going to instantly be a better place. And we need more voices out there to push this narrative, to say it's okay to be balanced. It's okay to take a risk on a creative idea. It's okay to try to you know, level the playing field so that good ideas can get out there into the world. And we are going to cover some of the ways you can do that to balance the right and left hemisphere. One of the examples you give, and I just wanted to map what we were talking about there to a concrete example, and one that makes sense when you hear it, but is often overlooked in the story of Apple and the resurgence of Steve Jobs back into Apple. You mentioned this in the book, was if you think of any organization, originally they're created from the creative mindset their creator mindset, the right brain. But then as the and as the organization matures, the left takes over and it becomes, oh, we need to protect what we've already created. We need to now milk the cash cow as much as possible. And as a result, the right gets quashed again. And that's what happened with Apple. Jobs was ejected. And yes, he may have not been a great leader and hopefully he learned a lot during his period of exile. But when he came back, the way Apple wanted to fix the organization before was with the left, as you say, and this is what many organizations do, redundancies, layoffs, product closures, etc. Instead of leaning into the right hemisphere again, into the creator mindset and saving companies that way. I'd love you to take us through this. Yeah, definitely. I talk about it when I, I'm out doing keynotes and I could literally see people's eyes roll. Right. I'm like Apple. And then like I could see people like, oh, God, not another Apple story, please, please, not another. But here's the story. Right. Basically, Steve Jobs got kicked out uh, of Apple, his own company. And Apple was in deep dookie because they put out the um, the uh, the Newton before. It's like the pre iPad. The Newton didn't do well. And so they were losing money left and right. And the company was hanging on by a, a lifeline. And what ended up happening with analytics took over, just like you said, Aiden. It was, oh, if we're in deep trouble, what we're going to do is we're going to do layoffs and restructuring, which is like restructuring is the most BS term ever, right? It's like literally. So they did restructuring, whatever that means, layoffs and all of this stuff, and none of it worked. Why? Because when we do analytics only, they'll never work. I talk with companies all over the world, man. It's my life's work. I promise you, I've documented case studies in the thousands of companies that start off with some kind of innovation and then they level off because they're like, we got to protect it. We can't do anything else. Oh, what worked yesterday will work tomorrow. In every single case and every single company ever started on earth, if there isn't continual innovation, there is decay and death. It is guaranteed that if you don't continually change, innovate, adapt, um, you know, kind of be in the moment with the consumer or, or if you're B2B, be in the, the moment with the buyer, then something will always, always crash and burn. So the same thing happened to Apple. They were on, on analytics only in the Apple, right, out of all companies. And so Steve Jobs got bought back in at the, like, you know, the 11th hour. 
And he said, you know, I've got an idea, you know, let's get creative. And they're like, no, you know, you can't do this. So he was like, listen, this is the idea. This is what I think we should do. We're going to go talk to Bill Gates. Bill Gates, the little known story, by the way, we're going to talk to Bill Gates and we're going to ask him for a loan. And people were like, absolutely not. And then the lawyers got a hold of it and they were like, no, never. You can't do that because of this and that. And here are all the rules of why you can't do it. And here are all the, the, the things that will expose the company. They will expose the company to lawsuits and all of this stuff. And, oh, we can't do that. And then he was like, okay, fine. So he literally went, got his cell phone out, called him at home. And he's like, yeah, yeah, you know, I mean, you, you know, the history between those two, it's, uh, it's a pretty long history. Anyway, he's like, come on over. And the details of what happened are lost to history, right? Because we, you know, we lost Steve Jobs and now, you know, Bill Gates ain't talking about it. But basically what came out of that meeting was a loan. Uh, uh, Microsoft <laughs> gave Apple a loan to keep them in business. And there's one interview that we were able to locate, one interview. Uh, some in some magazine, I don't know, one of the researchers found it from my book. And basically what Bill Gates said was that he didn't devote, you know, dive into any details. But what he did say was that having a competitor, having any competitor that pushed Microsoft to be better was worthwhile as a goal and worthwhile to humanity. So he realized, uh, Bill Gates also got incredibly creative. He realized that having somebody to compete with and somebody that pushed them in the marketplace was incredibly valuable. And that is how a creative idea saved Apple. You think it's a product or something like that? Absolutely not. It was literally a creative way to look at a business problem, asking for a loan from somebody, your worst adversary. And that is where creativity was actually born. I'd love to talk about that later on, because later on in the book, you talk about complacency and the complacency conundrum that so many people have. But it, this to me makes sense because I worked in a legacy organization, a government organization, not for very long, by the way, <laughs> as I said, uh, ejected like a bad kidney transplant is uh, an understatement for anybody that's creative in a place like that. But the reason I say that is when they're bailed out by the government all the time, when they have no commercial remit, the creativity atrophies in a place like that. And we need environmental pressure and environmental pressure in nature is, you know, survival of the fittest or the most collaborative. And that came to mind when I read about this story you, you brought to life here. So that was one thing that I thought was really, really important to understand. But I wanted to that now at this time, I thought we'd inter infuse some of the great exercises you give. And you, you say that we don't need to learn to be creative. We need to relearn to be creative. Like you talked about earlier on, we were born that way. And one of the great exercises that you offer, and I'd love you to take us through this, is that for anybody who has a challenge that's keeping them awake at night or something that's like a buzzing fridge in the back of their mind, they can do something about it. And this leans into everything you talk about in the book. I'd love you to take us through this, Nir. Definitely. So I talk a lot in the book about one of the 92 tools is writing stuff down. 
Okay. It sounds really dumb and maybe like, oh, oh whatever. How is that going to increase my creativity? But what happens is when you write something down, you trigger a different element of your brain than just thinking about it. Okay. It's been studied. I've referenced it in the book. Basically what happens is when you have a thought, it stays in a certain realm of the brain that deals with, you know, emotion and, and different, different sort of, uh, uh, judgment thoughts, stuff like that. Should I do this? Should I not? Do I prioritize it? Do I go to the bathroom right now? I mean, it's stuff like that. That's where your idea stays. You don't want your good idea to stay in the realm of, should I go to the bathroom now? Or am I hungry? Or do I want some water? Right? That's not, that's not where you want a great idea to sit, but that's where it sits. That part of the brain, it sits in that part of the brain. And so what ends up happening is it, it doesn't get the attention that it deserves. So when you grab a pen and a paper, uh, or a pencil, whatever, and you write down that idea, it transforms it from that part of the brain that deals with emotional decision-making to a action item decision uh, point. So you write stuff down as it comes up and it is an incredibly powerful creative tool. What you end up doing is we, we talk about kind of the second level of writing stuff down, which is the waterfall in the book. And the waterfall is basically an exercise where you sit down and you start writing stuff out, regardless of whether it makes sense or not. You just pen and paper, uh, um, you know, pencil or whatever in hand, and you just start writing stuff as it comes to your mind. And what ends up happening is you might write, you know, 95%, you know, just pure crap that you'll never use again. But there might be a nugget in there at some point that is incredibly important, right? And the pressure that we put on ourselves to come up with that nugget, right, might be, okay, Nero, I'll do the waterfall and then I'll just sit there and wait because I'm trying to challenge myself and, you know, trying to come up with the idea. The, the greatest battle that we ever have in humanity, the greatest power is not, you know, uh, war or a bomb or somebody, uh, people always think of like, you know, huge, powerful things as being something like that, but they're not. They're the battle between you and yourself, right? They're the battle between you allowing an, or not allowing an idea to come out. It's that internal battle that it takes away any sense, any ability to come up with a good and decent creative idea. So what I recommend is people do that, that writing exercise and literally you don't care what you put on the page. Sometimes it'll be good. Sometimes it won't. What you do is you do that waterfall and then you put it away somewhere. You wait a day and then you come back to it. If you look at it right away, not good. If you look at it in an hour, not good. You're still accessing the part of the brain that deals with short-term memory. There's, there's all kinds of studies on it. Don't do it. Put it away come back the next day and then look at it. And then when you look at it the next day, you go, oh, I didn't even think of that. Or some gobbledygook that nobody will trigger something in you to go, what a cool idea. That is the way that I'm going to deal with my you know, cash flow situation. That is the way that I'm going to get net 30 instead of net 45 on the payments from, you know, those guys who owe me money all the time. And I'm like, you know, tr I, I, trying to float different things around so that I can pay people and the vendors and all this stuff. That's what I'm going to do. That's how I'm going to approach the problem. You've solved it already for yourself because you've allowed yourself just a little bit of freedom to explore. You've written a book. So you know what this is like, where when you're writing, you wake up in the middle of the night, you're like, kind of going, I have an idea. And you, you write it down because it's coming from a different part of your brain. And as you say, you're writing this all day. So it's constantly marinating in your brain the whole time. 
We had a brilliant guest on the show a couple of times, a lady called Anne Janzer, who's written brilliant books, writing to be mis- writing to be understood, etc. They're brilliant books. But she has a great way of thinking of this. And I thought I'd share it with you because it matches beautifully to what you talk about. She said, the right and left brain are like the muse and the scribe. So the scribe is very analytical. It wants to get all the spelling right and get it all correct. But the muse is like, just get it out there. Just write whatever comes to mind, etc. And there's this constant battle between the muse and the scribe. And unfortunately for most people, they let the scribe over, they let the scribe win the master and the emissary once again. But I wanted to move on because I thank you for sharing that. And there's a there's an, a, a great thing you share next. And I'm you call it the trinity of creativity. And this is about innovation, because as you know, many times you work with organizations and a CEO or a leader might go, I need more, more innovation. I need more innovative people in my organization. But that is often not the problem really in the organization. Again, as you tell us, this can be learned. And you call this the trinity of creativity. The three points that you talk about that make up the trinity are the concept, the idea, and the execution. And near. If you're all right, will I share the diagram and maybe you can talk over that diagram? Of course, of okay, course. I, I'm going to throw this up on the screen and then uh, we'll, we'll let our audience uh, see it for those people who are watching us on YouTube. And let's ha- we'll have a bit of empathy as you talk about is a really important skill also for people who are just listening to us. Yeah, definitely. So the concept and the idea and the execution are basically the building the ingredients that build creativity. This is the factory. This is the how to make creativity. There are tons of books and webinars and courses and all this stuff out there that talk about why you should be creative. If you want that, do not buy my book. It's not the why. The the why has been done to death. Who cares about the why? Tell me how to do it. I need to do it now. I've got deadlines. This is a practical thing, right? So this is a very practical tool. What you do is you get a pen and a piece of paper, right? And you write down the word concept, idea, and execution, okay? And you start with the execution. The execution is going to be some kind of skew, right? It is your direct product or your direct service or whatever. Um, So in the book, we talk about a pizza uh, company. I worked with a a food service uh, company, and this is where the the example came from. And basically, the CEO and the C-suite was like, well, we need to sell more pizza. That was their thing. So let's let's get creative and innovative. And to sell more pizza, it's like, okay, cool. That's a, you know, a, a decent idea, but that means nothing. It means nothing. There's no action items from saying, let's get more innovative. Let's get more creative. What, okay, great. Well, what are we going to do to sell more pizza? Silence, right? So, okay, let's find a way to build the how. So their execution was that their bestseller was the double crust, cheesy crust, medium, whatever, garlic pizza. I can't remember what it was, but it was something like that. And I was like, okay, guys, now that is your my electron microscope view of that skew, right? That is what you put out the door and people pay you for. And it is an execution of your company. I said, okay, let's start looking at the idea. What is the larger level, right? So now we're looking at the electron microscope, we get the execution, right? That's like, we can see the atoms and stuff moving around, right? But now let's look at the idea, which is the street level view. Right, what you could see with your eyes. What are we seeing in the business at that view? 
And, you know, the executives and stuff were like, well, basically what we're seeing is, you know, um, pizza near. We're seeing that's what we do. We do. We're a pizza place. I said, I know, but like go a little bit bigger. Start to think what is the idea behind this thing? And they said, well, you know, it's kind of um, it's food. That's what we're doing. I said, is it really food? Like, um, you know, is it uh, the same as Japanese food and stuff like that? And then people started going, well, no, this is comfort food. I was like, ah, yes. Now, now we're getting somewhere. By the way, Aiden, when you run this yourself for your business, you're going to get different results because this explores that childhood DNA that's in your soul, right? It is literally locked into part and parcel of who you are. And companies are very much like people, right? And this particular company started with, you know, grandma came over from Sicily in 1892 or whatever with a certain recipe. And that DNA is still in the brand. So it's about unlocking the DNA that's already there in the brand and and finding ways to manipulate it creatively. I said, okay, cool. So that's the the idea. What's the concept? And then again, they were like, it's comfort food. We're pizza. Who cares? That's what we do. I said, give me the, the satellite and space view, right? Everything, the wide view. What is the fabric of that makes this company different than others? And, you know, somebody said, grandma came over with the pizza recipe, the, the sauce recipe and all this stuff. And basically somebody in the room said, and I'll never forget this. They're like near, there are people in the U.S., who get a pizza from us every day, every day at six o'clock. And it's literally their only contact with humanity because they have a relationship with the drivers. They love the drivers. They, we literally, if it wasn't for us, they would start. And I'm like, that's crazy. So is that for real? They're like, oh yeah, oh, that 100% different markets and stuff, no matter where it is. Um, there are customers that order from us every day. I said, okay, so what are you guys really doing? What is the huge, huge view, the concept? And they're like, well, we're kind of in the sustenance business, right? We 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 have incredibly good deal. Uh, you get a lot of food. Um, you know, you can feed a family, and we we're very proud of that. We're very proud of the fact that we've kept the prices just right. That we could feed, um, you know, uh, a lot of people for a decent amount, and that that's kind of the business. I said, okay, cool. So your concept is sustenance. Your idea is comfort food, and your execution is pizza, or at least, you know, the double crust, uh, meat lovers, whatever medium. And they're like, yeah, great. We've done that. We've wasted a week. We've paid you for it. Now what? And I was like, okay, cool. Yeah, I get it. But now comes the fun part. So I want everybody to look at the medium level, the idea, and start to come up with different ideas that have to do with comfort food. And they were like, well, what about comfort? When I think of comfort food, I think of chicken soup. So I made everybody get a piece of paper out. We wrote it down and somebody wrote down chicken soup. And I was like, great guys, what else? And then they slowly but surely did the work themselves. They didn't, I don't want to be there as augmented staff. I want to do a couple weeks with them, maybe a month, get everybody really excited, get everybody focused on how to innovate and then leave it. You know, it's not, I don't want to be your augmented staff. I want you to be able to be empowered to come up with the ideas yourself. So after I did that, and they kind of, they started to map out new products, right? Originally, the goal from the C-suite was we need to sell more pizza. And what they got was different products. So uh, I'm really proud to 
to uh, have been part of the, you know, Calzone thing that that was a new product that came out of this exact consultation service because it was something that was a derivative of comfort food, but not exactly pizza. And it gave them a new offering. It's brilliant. I didn't come up with it. They did. It's their brand. I can't go in and tell you, Aiden, this is what you need to be doing in your business or go to your listeners and say, you need a Calzone pizza (laughs) and collect a check. I don't know. You have to explore the brand. You have to relearn how to think creatively in order to come up with these different ideas. And the funny story is the chicken soup that they came up with, uh, a chain here in the US called Chick-fil-A released the chicken soup almost three years ago. And everyone's like, totally off brand, man. Like you were a chicken sandwich place, Chick-fil-A's chicken sandwiches and fried chicken, by the way, and and fries. That's their their core thing. They have four things on the menu, right? Then they added the the chicken soup. Everyone's like, oh, it's going to be a failure. It's one of the most popular products. People go in there to get chicken soup. Who knew? It's not even fried. It's like, you know, grilled chicken soup in a thing and it's delicious. Um, So the, the point being is that the DNA of your product or service is sitting there with latent potential to grow, latent potential to scale, latent potential to increase profitability and increase revenue. It is up to you in your business or even in your career to explore and exploit that very, very DNA in order to grow the company, in order to meet your goals, in order to maximize effectiveness no matter what it is that you do, it is right there for the taking. You just have to learn how to do it. It reminds me of um, a great show we did. This is a long time ago. It's pre-pandemic with a brilliant guy called A.K. Pradeep. And he wrote a book called AI for Marketing and Product Innovation. But it, he was talking about something similar to you where it was funny because you you talk about these limitations we have where you know, for example, Harriet, a lady 100,000 years old who can teach us these things about the negativity bias we naturally have, because we were hunted like animals, not so long ago in, in the human evolution in, in the evolution of the brain. But I, I wanted to just mention this with AK Pradeep. He used AI and combined it with a team and a near so a facilitator. And they all worked together, including the AI. And the AI scanned social media to, they were trying to find a new flavor of ice cream. And what they noticed through the AI was the AI had picked up that a lot of people talked about ice cream at breakfast time. And that was thrown into the ether and marinated in everybody's minds. And then one of the team over lunch was like, kind of going, what if we used the milk from the cereal from breakfast to make ice cream and that became an absolute killer product for the same reasons you're talking about there because it 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 said probably if somebody said that it would be kind of gone judgmental and kind of gone i don't want them to have a win because then i don't look so good the scarcity mentality etc so i want to just put that there and i'd love you to unpack these things and then the next was that this negativity bias we naturally have like you, I run workshops all the time, sometimes ideation workshops or brainstorming. And what I find is if, if you start with, give me all the reasons this won't work, you'll fill the walls with post-it notes and 
you know, all everything negative, why it won't work. And then you're like, kind of going like you with the pizza guys, what will work? And then it's like, uh, and it's quiet and it's silence. And that is baked into our brain and we need to overcome that. And this is a huge part of your work is all this work, all these exercises that you offer in the book can help us break that negativity. I talk about it all the time. So we, we've done some, some deep studying here, right? And we looked at the English language. And the English language is a very interesting language because if you look at it carefully, you'll see that there is almost a six to one ratio of bad words to good words. Okay, six to one. Isn't that crazy? So for every uh, positive or fun or nice word, there is six negative words. Um, crap, sucks, you know, not fun, not great, you know, horrible, terrible. There's, there's so many more bad words. And I figured, you know, it's kind of an English phenomenon, right? Because, you know, the UK is kind of, I don't know, it's dreary, right? Most of the year it rains, it's kind of like, ooh. So it's an English thing, you know, it, it comes with describing the environment. That was my theory, right, um, of the of the British Isles. I thought like, okay, cool, I, I got that one. Uh, it's English only. So then I said, you know what, but like in order to, to put this thing in a published book, you have to actually do the research. So I was like, okay, I'll do the research. So I, I, I had my team go out and look, I think it's something like 26 different languages um, all over, all over the world picked at random. And we found that the same thing exists in every single language on earth. Now, sometimes the ratio is five to one, sometimes it's like 10 to one uh, in some languages, but we found it in every corner of the globe. And so What's really important here is choosing your words incredibly careful and always trying to align on the side of positivity. What ends up happening is when you choose to reject the negative words and you choose to instead frame these problems that you're having at work in some kind of positive way, the ability to solve that problem, the ability for creativity to take hold multiplies automatically just by your selection of words. It's amazing. So really when something goes wrong at work, you could say it sucks. This is terrible. You know, this is not great. Uh, it's a horrible, you know, setback and all these language words that we have to describe something going awry or off the rails or whatever. Instead of choosing to do that, you can choose to look at it with some kind of positivity. And when you do that, you automatically inspire creativity just by your word selection. Now, Aiden, I, I, you know, I know that you have a huge background in entrepreneurship and you've owned companies and stuff like that. And I've hired, uh, and me too, right? So I've been in, in business a long time for myself. I started when I was nine years old, going door to door, washing cars. And I had a little car business when I was in, you know, whatever, fourth grade on the weekend, we would go out and and help people uh, wash their cars. It was amazing. I had like a couple of kids from the neighborhood and I would take a percentage. It was awesome. But the, the point being is that I've hired a thousand people roughly. Um, actually, it's a little more than that over my career. And I've noticed that every time you hire somebody, 
there is a direct correlation between their language and their success. Okay. So if they are like a positive sort of minded person, even if they're faking it, it doesn't even matter. But if they choose to describe things positively, they're C-suite level today, right? People I've hired as juniors are now running companies. And I'm like, can I do a keynote for you guys? You, you know, that's our relationship now. Um, but basically, that that's what I've found over, over the, that many years. Like you said earlier, Aiden, any asshole can tell you why something is bad. Anybody can do it, right? We can fill a room. We are naturally disposed to the negative parts of life. Why? Because we used to get eaten by beasts far stronger than us. And, you know, we were in caves and everybody was a threat. We were so weak, right? We we didn't have those things that were this big and the strength of the claws that these other animals had. And yeah, things were negative. People would die at like 20. You were a grandma at like age 14. I mean, you know, this is this is how bad things used to be for humanity. But something happened to our early uh, man and woman. And what happened was that we learned how to get creative. We used our brains to enable survival. And then because we used our brain to enable survival, we uh, transcended from mere animals to the society that we have today. So yes, positivity is incredibly important. And the language that we use in day-to-day work is uh, paramount in order to become more creative. Something your listeners can do right now, right? They're listening. They're like, okay, that's kind of cool, but it's theoretical. How am I going to ever apply that? Emails. Emails, right? You send, how many emails a day do you send? I send hundreds, hundreds, right? It's like tracking this, talking with the staff, making sure that we got paid on this invoice. And, you know, it's hundreds of things back and forth. Do you, are you the kind of guy or gal that sends an email that says, you know, uh, thanks, have this in by noon? Or are you the person who says, hi, Aiden, hope you're doing well. Um, nice to Nice to catch up with you. If you can, please check in on this uh, invoice. Uh, we're, we've been tracking it for a while. It's kind of important because of these reasons, comma, your name. Or, or you send like one-liners, like tracking, m- must have this by tomorrow, please. Or you don't even say please. And, you know, so just next time you sit down to send an email, you make a choice. You make a choice every day in life to how you want to approach a particular situation, how you want to approach a vendor, how you want to approach your boss. It doesn't really matter. Take two extra seconds to put the person's name, for God's sakes, put the person's name and ask them how they're doing. You don't know. They might have gotten hit by a bus. You don't know, man. There's so much that happens to people that is hard for them to deal with or or wonderful. Maybe their kid just graduated and they had a wonderful celebration, or maybe somebody just got diagnosed with some horrible things. Why are you the person that is looking at just perpetuating that negativity when you could take an extra second in your email, in your next email and put, hi, Aiden, hope this message finds you well, because you genuinely do and say, you know, hey, we're checking in on this invoice. Let me know when you get a chance. Your return rate on those emails and your response rate, the engagement rate will go through the roof rather than sending a quick one-liner and and being kind of uh, um, a negative Nelly. So I urge your listeners and people watching us right now, that positivity, just start an email and you will see an amazing transformation within hours because you'll get 
people responding like, oh, yeah, you know, had a nice weekend. My son graduated school or whatever. And you, you get that amazing humanity back um, that you will never, ever get with negativity. I'm so happy you brought that up, man. It's it's uh, when I was uh, retiring from sport from from a career in sport, I I thought I mistakenly thought everybody was educated in business writing, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And when I joined the company, I was an intern. I was 31, an intern. My language was all like that, you know, very well laid out emails. I did now. I didn't spend time on that, but it became the way I wrote emails. But what I found back to your point is about the language. I didn't know that about the mismatch of negative to positive words. But when you use that positive language to others, it reflects you. It actually changes how your brain also thinks. A way I, I noticed this with myself was I studied in, in Germany and France. And when I was in, I speak French and German. When I was in Germany and people go, uh, wie geht's, which means, how are you? I'd go, nicht schlecht, which means not bad because that's what we'd say in Ireland. Predominantly, I used to say, you go, how's it going? I go, not bad. Isn't it amazing? Yeah. And then, and then because I, because it was in a different language, they'd kind of go, that's not the usual response. And they'd kind of, they'd be kind of looking at me. And then, then I went to France after Germany and they were like, you know, Sava, which is, how is it going? And I go, Pamal, which means not bad. (laughs) And again, that fact that I was out of the normal environment exposed it to me and I went oh my god and then I just changed it forever going forward and people go how are you going I go fantastic and even when I'm not feeling great because then it actually makes me feel better amazing amazing and and the other thing was I loved what you said about the the people and you talk about that later on in the book the importance of of people to build an organization and be more creative in the organization. I do some executive coaching and I also run programs for organizations for new hires. And one of the things I tell them, and they're always shocked. And I, I wait till the end. I say, I've noticed with your emails, X, Y, and Z. So how you're communicating creates a brand in the other person's head of who you are. And it has such a dramatic effect because we all know what it's like to receive that email from somebody that's just like, it's, you're, an, you're an afterthought to them, yeah. you know, and, and, and they're treating you like a machine. And again, it goes right back to what you talked about, the left brain, the dominating analytical, logical brain mechanistic is dominating much of the world today. I thought we'd cover one more thing because we're going to do two parts. Nir has kindly offered to do two parts with us. We're going to take a break and we're, we're both doing them on the same day. So we're going to take a break, get a coffee, have a, a mental amuse-bouche <laughs> and we'll come back and we'll do part two. But I'd love you to, I'd love to whet our audience's appetite about some of the 12 principles that you pepper the book with. And you highlight throughout the book, these, these principles, three of which come together and are so important. One I mentioned earlier on, which was empathy. The other two that go with empathy are humor and courage. And this is a trio that works well across the principle of 12, the 12 principles that are throughout the book. I'd love you to tell us about these humor, empathy, and courage. There's nothing I get more emails about from around the world at this book than those three things, because people are like, really, really? Those are the three most important thing. They're like, humor is not important. Like people love, I think with social media, um, Aiden, like people love to say why you're wrong, right? This goes back to this negativity thing. If you look at most threads in, in you know, it, I think it's human nature, right? There's something about social media that separates the humanity from the human, 
right? And you're able to tell somebody, oh, you're a jerk online a hundred times easier than you would be in person, right? A hundred times easier. So, so people, because of that degree of separation, want to say near, you know, empathy is, is okay, fine. It's important, but humor, who cares? Right. Uh, courage is like whatever, you know, but those for me are the foundational things. And I'll tell you why um, humor opens up a, is, is an incredibly complex thing. Right. And what it does is it allows you to look at a situation in a different way. The very nature of humor is creative because for something to be funny, your brain has to sort of, you know, combine several things that are usually one way. And the joke is that it makes it a different way. Now, I'm not saying go off and, you know, tell crude jokes or something like that, and you're going to do great in your career. But I am saying that a well-timed humorous moment or actively looking for the humor and the folly in life is a wonderful, wonderful business tool. At the end of the day, who cares? right? Literally, we're all going to die anyway. And that problem about selling more pizza has very little to do with humanity, you know, in general. So that to me is really, really funny that we spend most of our lives and so much effort on things that are in general, pretty damn trivial, right? And that is a kind of a funny thing that humans are so inclined to spend so much time on things that don't matter and so little time on things that do matter that, you know, there, there has to be an outlet of humor. The other, the other cool thing is it's a stress reliever, right? So if you, if you're deep down, you're in a, in the, the, laser focused view of some problem going on in your business or in your career, um, you know, you need a, a valve to kind of like let some of that stuff go. And if you can find a, a creative, funny way or humorous way to look at that, then you're really, really in good shape. Um, empathy, incredibly important. The, the ability of humans to relate to each other, the foundation of business, period period. I don't care what it is what, that you do or how incredibly technology, uh, technologically advanced your product or services. I've talked to, to people in the Valley about this and, you know, they're like, well, near. We're an AI company. AI is amazing. It's going to take over the world, man. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, cool. Yeah. Um, what's AI based on? They're like, well, incredibly complex, man. Okay, at, at its base, what is it? Well, it's, it's intelligence. Okay, what's intelligence come from? Well, humans. Oh, shit. Wow. Wow. You know, ooh. Like, so, so at, at the bottom line is that, you know, all of these things are wonderful, but having a, uh, a connection, an empathetic connection to your fellow coworkers, to your customer, to your vendors or your suppliers is an incredibly important tool. So we talk a lot about how to improve empathy. Um, and finally, having the courage, you need to have some courage to take a risk on an idea that most people do not. And we talk a lot in the book about, and, and I talk about in my keynotes and workshop about people in different fields from medicine to engineering who have said, you know what, the status quo is this, 
I'm going to look at it in a different way. And instantly they get shut down. Just like you said, um, Aiden, when you went to work at the government organization, you were the creative one and it was just friction from the get-go. And there's a reason for that. And there's a way to alleviate that friction too. And it it takes a lot of courage and and individualism uh, and sometimes collectivism and, and going with the team. But but that is a corner keystone of getting innovation out, getting innovation to, to move forward. So those three things are incredibly important. And I'd be happy to get an email from you telling me that it's not. <laughs> there is a challenge. And it's a great way to finish today's show on the topic of courage. In case anybody does misses episode two, the follow on part part two of this episode near where can people find you in order to find out because you're very generous with tools that you offer diagnostics, etc. And also for people interested in getting in touch with you for keynotes and workshops, where can they find you? So I'm on nearbashan.com, N-I-R-B-A-S-H-A-N.com. If you Google near Bashan, there's two of us or three of us in the entire world. So you'll, you'll find me. I'm, I'm really easy to find. There's a kid uploading like Call of Duty clips. That's not me. I wish I had that time. <laughs> Can you imagine? Like how cool would that be? Like playing video games and uploading it to YouTube. He gets more clicks than me. It's amazing. This yeah. kid, he uploads and then he gets, you know, people watch. It's like, you know, I don't know. I don't get it. Do you get it, Aiden? I, I don't, man. I, I also have that challenge with the length of the show. So covering content and going deep in the show, you know, this because you run podcasts, and you have a much less uh, volume because it's it's not your podcast as well. So the, the attention span for people has got less and less, which is a huge challenge to deep thinking and creativity because be cre- creating the right environment, as you know, well, is so important to become creative in the first place. So I have the same challenge, but I, I'm sticking to my guns, man. And, you know, as, as I feel, and I, I, I genuinely feel this with this show, it's an absolute privilege. And it's it's learning from great people every week, witnesses. <laughs> so this is like having a security camera on. Luckily, luckily the quality is getting your, better. Your catalog runs to the who's who. I mean, seriously, it's one of the, one of the better shows that if you look on your website and go to episodes and stuff, I mean, that's pretty much, uh, I don't know, what, what do you have? Like the top 10% of thought leaders on earth? Like you you have people from everywhere. I, I think it's so cool. In, and I spent some time listening to the episodes because I want to learn stuff. So you're doing, it's it's a real service. Thank you, man. Thank you. And, and I, I genuinely mean it. There's a selfishness there as well. Like you said, you want to create a better planet. Uh, likewise here and I think one of the ways to do this is uh, give information that will help people make better decisions so they can lead better lives through better companies that can get you know offer sustainability properly to the planet and give back etc it's an absolute pleasure talking to you man I I really enjoyed it and uh, I look forward to part two we're going to record that pretty soon we're going to take a little break um, I might what I might do is actually release both of these back to back if I can get the time to edit them back to back and for those who want to join us in part two, we're going to cover the other tools, the other principles uh, to help you become more creative and adopt the creator mindset. For now, author of The Creator Mindset, 92 Tools to Unlock the Secrets of Innovation, Growth and Sustainability. Nir Bashan, thank you for joining us. Thank you, sir. See you soon. Just before we wrap up and prepare for part two at Nir Bashan, I want to thank our sponsor Zai, boldly transforming the future of financial services with a suite of embedded products and services, enabling businesses to create multiple payment workflows. 
and move funds with ease. You can check out Zai at hellozai.com and I'll see you very soon for part two of the Creator Mindset with Nir Bashan.